Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's event occurred in the year 1896. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 28th of January, Walter Arnold of Kent receives the first speeding conviction for driving in excess of the contemporary speed limit of 2 miles per hour. The 16th of August saw the National Trust acquire for £10 its first building for preservation and its first property in England, Alfriston Clergy House in East Sussex. The 27th of August saw the shortest war in recorded history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which started at nine in the morning and lasted for a mere 45 minutes. And on the 14th of November, the Locomotives and Highways Act comes into effect, raising the speed limit for road vehicles from four to 14 miles per hour and removing requirement for a man to walk in front of an automobile to give warning. To celebrate this, an emancipation run of cars from London to Brighton is held. It's now called the London to Brighton Veteran Car Run. And on an ordinary afternoon in July, 14-year-old Mary Waggett was strolling around her local area near her house, Winbow Cottage, in the neighbourhood of the powder houses overlooking the Usk River. She was heading along the Seven Sea Embankments in the direction of the new lighthouse into the second bay east of the River Usk's mouth, locals calling it Iron Railing Bay, the fresh breeze gently moving her fair hair when she saw something floating in the water. On closer inspection, she realised it was a human body and instantly started running straight home. Not the long scenic route she had taken to get there, but the more direct route, through moors and thistles. When she had found her mother, she described her discovery, declaring that she had found the body of a sailor, as the poor soul was dressed as such. Mrs Waggett told Mary to notify some of the local hay cutters working in a nearby field, one of whom was Mr Little, who hurried to the discovery site with Mary as his guide. It took a while, as it was about three miles away, and when they arrived, 
the body was now high and dry. Little's first impression was that it was the body of a young lad as he could see knickerbockers. The hay cutters left the body where it was and headed towards Nash to notify the village constable, P.C. Boucher, who then organised a party consisting of Alfred Tompkins, John Watkins, Henry Williams and John Bassett to help him retrieve the body and it was midnight before they reached the bay. Unfortunately, one of the shafts of the trap they were riding snapped on the rough terrain and they had to continue most of the journey on foot. Mary Waggett, this time with a younger sister, once again acted as the guide and the corpse was found. That was when it was discovered to be that of a young woman wearing a board of trade cork life belt around her waist. Attached to the belt were straps and a pair of swivel spring hooks. She was also wearing a bodice and knickers of blue serge decorated with gold cord, black stockings and laced partially lacquered boots. Word of the week. And today I give you... Balloonatic, which is a fanatic balloon enthusiast, many of whom eat, drink and sleep ballooning. Why else would they get up at 4.30 in the morning to stand out in the cold and do hard manual labour? Why? Because they're balloonatics. The body was taken to Nash, where it was placed in a temporary morgue in the church belfry. P.C. Boucher took the life belt and straps to the Waterloo Inn opposite the church where they were seen by Miss Jones, the daughter of the house. Miss Jones was an avid newspaper reader who had been keeping up to date with the mystery of the disappearance of the lady parachutist from Cardiff. She recognised the belt and straps instantly. Mrs. Jones, the pub landlady, accompanied P.C. Boucher to assist him with the body. They opened the blue serge bodice, loosened the saturated corsets and crossed the pale hands over the breast. Common Christian attentions of the day. P.C. Boucher reported the discovery to his superiors at Newport County Police Station, who told him to proceed to Cardiff to speak to the coroner for South Monmouthshire, Mr. M. Roberts-Jones. The inquest was held on the 27th of July, 1896, in the Waterloo Inn in Nash, on the death of Mademoiselle Albertina, whose real name was Louisa Maud Evans. Her body was still being held in the belfry of the church opposite. The jury was made up of local farmers, and the first witness called was young Mary Waggett. Mary was slightly deaf, but still managed to give clear, intelligent answers to the questions put to her. She explained that she had been taking a stroll to see if any timbers had been washed ashore when she discovered the body. She described the events of that terrible night leading up to the body being transported to the belfry. P.T. Boucher was up next, and he gave his statement. I was informed of a discovery by a man named Williams at 10pm on Friday. 
he said there was a body of a man washed near a shore near Nash. I went to the Waggetts, and Mary Waggett accompanied me to near the East Usk lighthouse. She pointed out the spot to me, and I got down to the bank and found the body, which was lying on the stones. The tide was then right out, it was pitch dark, and I could not see the water. The body lay on its back with its head towards the water and the feet towards the shore. On the body was attached a life belt of cork. I don't think one could swim in it. There does not seem to be room for the arms. The belt was outside the clothing and encased the waist, back and front. The belt was strapped firmly on the body. Tapes passed over each shoulder and went down behind, sustaining the belt. After conveying the body to the church, I found underneath a sailor's blouse a strap and two spring hooks, which passed down the front of the body and over the shoulders to the back. The lower end of the strap was between the girl's legs, but was not fastened behind. The next person called to the stand was Auguste Goudron. He was a hot air balloon manufacturer and pilot who lived at 7 Victor Road in London and had 18 years of ballooning experience. He told how he'd only known Louisa for two months and had first met her when he was working with Hancock Circus in Redruth St Austell's in Cornwall and then Torquay. She had been at Mr Hancock's wagon when he'd gone there to find him. He'd asked Louisa if she knew where he was and assumed she was some kind of servant. Louisa gradually took it upon herself to look after the balloon, which was kept in Mr Hancock's cart. In Torquay, she mentioned how she would like to do a parachute descent a week before he left for Cardiff. August told Louisa that he was going to the Cardiff exhibition, did not want a female parachutist, but may want one for a future performance in Scotland. Louisa became very excited by this and said that she would also like to come to Cardiff. August didn't really take any notice of this at the time, but she did indeed turn up in Cardiff the following Monday, a week before the fateful flight. Did she come to Cardiff in reply to an advertisement published by you or not? No. But I did advertise for a lady to make her sense. What was the advertisement? Oh. Wanted a young lady to learn parachuting. To learn? Was it a pupil you wanted or an expert? You said to learn. A pupil I wanted. Where did she stay between Monday and the Monday following? I do not know the address, but she came to me one day and said her landlady could not accommodate her, and my wife took her to my landlady. Did you pay her by the week or the ascent? By the ascent. Five pounds per ascent. Did you know her age? No, she told me she was past 20. Did she look 20? She looked 20 to me. What is your age? 27. Did you know whether she had ever had experience before? She told me she'd been up in the rings of a captive balloon in Dublin and that she was a gymnast and went by the name of Grace Parry. I hope you're enjoying this tale so far. But now, it's time for us to take a quick stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll. 
where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. During this walk, we've come across some lovely scenery and really, really picturesque villages. But today, in Kintbury, we came across a real star. As we were walking along, the boat company was getting ready to take a party down the canal for the day. In a traditionally painted canal boat, keeping some of the 19th century English heritage alive. Set in Berkshire's beautiful countryside on the Kennet and Avon Canal, the horse-drawn barge is based in the pretty village of Kintbury near Hungerford and operates in the daytime and the early evenings. The horses are heavy cross shires, Freddie and Monty, and they're bedecked in traditional harnesses. The boat itself is purpose-built to the traditional style of canal boats in the 1800s and decorated in the bright colours of the Roses and Castle canal star. We met Monty in a field just past the boat, and he is so friendly and gorgeous, and it was great to see him and imagine what the canal must have been like in its busier heyday. Something else we discovered in Kintbury was the Kintbury Newt Ponds, which is a three-hectare nature reserve managed by the Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust. The Kintbury Newt Ponds were given its nature reserve status in the late 1990s when the site was discovered to have resident great crested newts, which stopped a housing development being built on the site. The reserve is made up of several ponds, reed bed, scrub and grasslands. As many of you are aware, we are doing this massive walk to try and raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol. And here's Amelia from the charity to tell you more about it. Yeah, so um, Suicide Prevention Bristol originally started um, in 2018 by our founder, Mike. Um, and yeah, I think him and a couple of buddies kind of got together and, and realised that there was quite a lot of suicides in Bristol. We've actually got one of the highest rates in the country of suicide in Bristol. Yeah, and him and some friends decided that they'd go out and kind of, you know, if they went out in a van and kind of watched over some of the kind of hotspots, would they see anyone? Would it be something that they could kind of stop people? Was that something that was actually kind of possible? So they started kind of going out and eventually it's just, it's grown. It's grown massively this year. Um, just because of the pandemic, I think people are really get becoming much more aware of kind of suicide and well-being and people's mental health. So we've had, which is incredible, um, a lot more volunteers join. Um, we also opened up our um, phone line. So part of Suicide Prevention Bristol is, other than the actual patrols that we do in the evening, is our 24-hour phone line. Um, so the patrols are Bristol-based. Um, purely Bristol-based, whereas the phone line is available for anyone across the whole of the UK. That interview is taken from the amazing Johnny Locke's Focus Show. But if you'd like to support this charity, you can pop over to justgiving.com, type in Backtracker, and you'll find our page.
Our story continues with Auguste Gaudron being questioned by the coroner over the death of Louisa Maud Evans. You yourself never saw her up in a balloon? No. Before she went up on Tuesday, did you give her any special instructions how to go? Yes. I had a map of Cardiff and I made certain the wind was blowing in the right direction for the moor and not the sea. It was blowing towards the Rimney River and I said to get bell to view for you never know what happens. I told her not to go too high because the wind was strong. I told her to jump over the ephemerie or over the middle of the town and then the wind will carry you just to the side of the town and you can come down in the open field. Did you tell her what to do if she fell in the water? Yes, I told her to keep up in the water and unhook herself from the parachute. It was at this point in the inquest when August showed how the parachute was attached by hooks, easy enough for Louisa to get to. From your own experience, what do you think happened when she fell into the water? When she fell into the water, probably the wind blew the parachute onto its side for a few yards. For a little time, the parachute would remain open. When you guess the wind was over, the parachute would fall into the water and the girl would, would release herself from the parachute. The parachute was not found with the body, and the only person who could have disengaged it was Louisa. Questions were then asked about whether the parachute was the right one for Louisa's size and weight. August explained that he himself had used it, and he was two stone heavier than Louisa, who was seven and a half stone. He also said that a Miss Alma Beaumont had used the same parachute, and she weighed six stone. Did you take any precautions to rescue her from the water in case she fell into the sea? Had you a boat? The people who engage me have to provide all these requirements. William Henry Cricks was next to be questioned. He explained that he had adopted Louisa when she was a baby, aged about 14 months. Her real father was Andrew Evans, a seaman in the Royal Navy, whom he had seen about 11 years previously. The last time William had seen Louisa was in Taunton, about a week before Easter. He'd gone there to do some gilding and decorating work for the Hancocks, who were about to set off for Exeter. The Hancocks are friends of ours. They asked my wife whether she would allow Louis to go with them as a companion for Mrs. Hancock. They asked my consent. I did not care for it at first, but I allowed it. Mary Ann Evans, Louise's mother, was called to the stand, but she cried bitterly. The coroner asked why she was so upset, as Louisa wasn't even living with her. Mary replied that she had never been out of her sight until she went with the Hancocks, at which point she became hysterical and had to be removed. Dr Brooks of Walter Road, East Moors, said that he had been watching the whole thing and saw the ascent, watching the girl leave the balloon. The parachute had extended and she'd gone slowly for a while, then getting into another current which took her rapidly towards the water. He went to the edge of the bank to get a better view and watched through powerful marine glass, looking on as she fell into the water about a mile away from him. He explained how it had happened so fast, there was no time to get any help for her. What did you see then? The parachute fell on her and the wind blew the parachute away from where I was standing. 
There was not the faintest movement on her part, and I did not think she detached herself from the parachute. What became of the parachute? It gradually sank. I saw nothing of it after four seconds. I should say that she and the parachute disappeared at the same time. In what position did she fall into the water? She dropped on her back. She appeared to be quite lifeless. It was at this point that P.C. Boucher pointed out that the straps for the parachute were underneath the clothing and could not have been attached to the parachute. August exclaimed that many people saw him attaching the hooks and she could not have been held on without an attachment like that. When asked if the hooks hadn't been fastened, what would have happened? He replied that Louisa would have simply fallen in town. Dr Hurley had been commissioned to do the post-mortem and found evidence of drowning as well as a large bruise on the left side of the forehead which he could not say if it had happened before or after death. He also said that there was a lot of mud and sand in the windpipe and small particles of sand in the tiny bronchial tubes but nothing in the stomach which led him to believe that Louisa had been unconscious when she reached the water. The jury concluded that Louisa was accidentally drowned in the Bristol Channel whilst descending from a balloon and unanimously agreed that August Gaudron had displayed great carelessness and want of judgement in allowing so young and inexperienced a person to make such a perilous ascent. Gaudron burst into tears at the mention of his name and turning to face the wall near him, he continued to sob audibly. Her death changed the law, with Parliament amending the Act concerning the age of children able to take place in dangerous pursuits. The incident adversely affected Cardiff's Council's ambition to put coal, iron and copperich South Wales on the international map. Louisa Maud Evans was laid to rest in Cathay Cemetery on the 29th of July, 1896. As the cortege proceeded to its final destination, more and more people joined, including mounted policemen and a band, all voluntarily. The weather turned and the rain brought a rather apt melancholy to the proceedings. The band played one of Mendelssohn's beautiful funeral marches and the rain grew heavier. Mr Sutton, a sculpture of Neville Street in Cardiff, created the beautiful headstone with an inscription which reads, In memory of Louisa Maud Evans, aged 14 and a half years, who met with her death in a balloon from Cardiff and descended by a parachute into the Bristol Channel. Her body was found washed ashore near Nash on 24th of July and was buried here on the 27th. To commemorate the sad end of a brave young life, this memorial is erected by public subscription. Requiescat in pace. Brave woman, yet in years a child, hath death closed here they heavenward flight. God grant thee pure and undefiled to reach at last the light of light.
in the day facts. Let's start with the 14th of August, 1574, when Queen Elizabeth I started a six-day visit to Bristol, which cost the corporation £1,053. As part of the entertainment laid on for her, a mock river battle took place in the River Avon. On the 15th of August, 1348, the Black Death broke out in Bristol, eventually causing the death of about a third of the town's population. The 16th of August holds two musical dates. Firstly, in 1958, the pop singer and actress Madonna was born, and in 1977, Elvis Presley passed away. On the 18th of August, in 1587, the first child of English parents to be born in the American colonies, a girl named Virginia Dare, was born. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen, who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Churchill was referring to the pilots involved in the Battle of Britain, the prolonged conflict between the Royal Air Force and the German Luftwaffe in August, September and October 1940 that could have resulted in Germany's invasion of the UK and that very, very famous historical speech was given on the 20th of August, 1940. And now to thank the real stars of the show, and they include Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold, and Marcus KP from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Steve Roberts, Molly Jeffries, and Sam Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. Until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK, or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>